You can find your place in James chapter number one. And while you find your place there, I want to remind you about some important perspectives and contexts concerning the book of James. The book of James was, uh, we believe, the earliest of the New Testament books that were written. In fact, uh, we have every reason to believe that it was penned before even the Gospels were penned. Now, of course, the events in the Gospels transpired before James ever penned down the book of James. Uh, but before the Gospel writers ever penned down under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, their record of the life of Christ, uh, James penned down this epistle to believers. Uh, to understand where James is coming from, we spent a lot of time on the first week, and, I, and if you've not gotten a copy of the notes from the first week, I strongly, strongly urge you to. We've got some copies over here. It's six pages, and it's pretty much all text, okay? It's pretty much all narrative. It's all descriptive. It, it's not an outline, uh, and, and it's important information to give you some perspective about the book of James. Uh, when James wrote his epistle, there's a few things that you need to understand about what Christianity looked like at that time. When James pinned down his epistle, the gospel had not, in a, in a large way, gone unto the Gentiles yet. You remember, the gospel is given to the Jew first, then to the Greek, then to the Gentile. And uh, all throughout the ministry of Christ, by the way, whenever Paul would arrive in a city, the first thing he would do very often, if there was not a church already there, is he would go to the synagogue and begin to dispute and begin to teach and begin to preach and begin to share the gospel with people. Well, I don't know if you know this, but in, in synagogues, you're not going to find a whole lot of Gentiles. And uh, so it was mostly Jews that he was winning to Christ. And uh, not just him, but the other uh, apostles, uh, when they traveled and preached the gospel, uh, they had a very similar experience. And it was not until uh, Paul began to experience, there were two great cataclysmic events uh, the very, very uh, important, I'm talking about seismic shifts in the dispensational landscape of the church. Uh, one was when Peter saw the vision of the sheep let down from heaven on four corners, holding all manner of unclean beasts. And this was a picture of the fact that God was going to do a work amongst Gentile nations, which was a totally radical, unfamiliar, alien concept to the Jewish mind. The other is that as Paul went about preaching the gospel, he, he continued to face persecution and hostility from the Jews. And on several occasions, he shook the dust off of his feet. In one, one particular instance, he said, I'm not going to the Jews anymore. Henceforth, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And uh, this in many ways represented his calling. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Before any of that happened, James pinned down his epistle. And when he did, the church was primarily Jewish in nature. In fact, the term Christian was not even uh, in the vernacular when James pinned down his epistle. If you had asked James, what does it mean to be a Christian? He would have said, well, what is a Christian? Uh, the believers were called Christians first at Antioch in Acts chapter number 11. We can understand something about the time frame of James's epistle because it must have occurred after the martyrdom of Stephen. The reason we know that is because whenever Stephen was martyred, it began a very vicious season of persecution against Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were scattered, the Bible says in Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 4, that they were scattered abroad and they went abroad. We call this a diaspora. They were driven from Israel. And they went all over the world uh, carrying the gospel with them. When James writes to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, it's evident he's not talking to Jews in a general sense, but he's talking to Jews that in a particular way, those that had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. So the fact that they're scattered abroad means that this must have transpired after the death of Stephen. So if you were to look at the church in, in the time when James wrote his epistle, I don't know that James comprehended all of the great dispensational uh, implications of Calvary and of the gospel uh, as it pertained to the work that God was doing in the world. And I don't mean to shortchange James in any way, shape, fashion, or form, but all of the great truths that, that Paul would, would pin down later in uh, you know the epistles that he wrote to the church at Corinth and to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Thessalonica, uh, to the church at Philippi, none of these things had been revealed yet. And a lot of them were things that had to be revealed. Uh, time and again, Paul says, I, I'm talking about a mystery. I show you a mystery. And a mystery, of course, is not something that cannot be known, but it's something that could not be known but has now been revealed. And all that transpired after James pinned down the epistle of James. Here is how I believe James would have viewed the world of believers. He would have viewed there as being two types of Jews. 
Jews that received the Messiah and Jews that rejected the Messiah. The idea of a vast Gentile church called out from the world under the name of Christ was not something that was even on his radar. Uh, He instead viewed Christianity, and I want to word this very carefully, he viewed Christianity as the divine embodiment, the, the highest climactic point to which Old Testament Judaism could reach. I don't believe that James had no concept that a change had been made in his life and a change had been made in the world uh, relative to Calvary. I believe he believed those things. But this idea of there's the Jews over there with their Judaism and here's us in the church over here with our Christianity was not very crystallized in James' mind, nor do we have any reason to think that it would be. To him, a believer was a completed Jew, a Jew that had seen in the law that it pointed towards Christ and had seen in Christ the end of the law for righteousness to everyone which believeth. He would have seen Calvary as the culmination of God's redemptive plan that he had been uh, weaving like a tapestry all throughout the Old Testament law. And so James's concept of Christianity is very, very rudimentary. It's very, very fundamental. Now you might say, well, preacher, that sounds like a negative thing to say. No, sometimes you have to get back to basics. One of the great things about the book of James, because it is so uh, fundamental, because it is so rudimentary in its expression of of Christianity, it, it takes us back to the building blocks of what it means to live like a Christian. Remember, Paul talked about the Old Testament law, and he said that the law was not about uh, faith and belief, but it was about doing. And that was the concept that the Jews had relative to the law, that the law was all about do this, do that, do this, do that. Now, James understood something deeper. He understood what motivates a person to do. In other words, he understood that it was not merely fear, it was not merely ritualism that caused a man to walk with God, but rather that it was the life of Christ within them. It was the uh, expression of faith, and we'll get into a lot of that later on in this series. But the reason it is so vital and so important is because, just to be frank with you, we have a bad habit in this day of, of... you know, Christianity today is a, is a mile wide and an inch deep. It's all fluff. It's all feeling. It's all emotion. Uh, it, Christianity today has been robbed of any practicality. It is all just sort of this weird, uh, you know, uh, like like a big gray amoeba. You know, <laughs> there's nothing definite, nothing absolute about it, nothing nothing distinct about it. Uh, everybody says they're a Christian. You live in East Tennessee, man, you don't meet anybody hardly that ain't a Christian. And yet very few people are living like Christians. It is to these people that I think the book of James has such a meaningful message. So we talked last week and uh, about the uh, first 16 verses of the book of James. And this was the theme of last week's lesson. I encourage you to listen to the audio, get the notes. But James begins by talking about the Christian and his battles. And uh, in those 16 verses, he talks about temptation, the dual definition of temptation, uh, what it means uh, as it relates to the solicitation to do evil, and what it also means in the sense of trials and tribulations that beset believers on this walk of uh, of life. Uh, He's been talking about the fact that uh, our Christianity and our faith, if it will not stand the test, then it is of no value. But he's also been talking about the fact that if it's true biblical faith, then it will withstand, it will stand the test, it will seek wisdom from God, it will lean upon His grace, it will stand the, the test of time and weather the storms of this life. Now the very last thing that he was talking about in uh, verse number 13, this is not part of our lesson tonight, but I want to give you a little context and then we'll read our scripture. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, he's been talking about the fact that God is not going to tempt you to do evil. Uh, He's not necessarily saying that God will not allow temptations in the sense of afflictions in your life, but he's saying God solicits no man to do wrong, no man to do evil. Uh, When we are tempted to do wrong, that didn't come from God. Uh, we spent a lot of time last week talking about that birth of temptation and sin in our lives. And that's the analogy that James uses when he talks about uh, lust when we have conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Uh, so none of that comes from God, the solicitation to do evil. 
Uh, God is aware that we are tempted to do evil, but God gives us grace to withstand that temptation. Uh, No man is tempted above that which we are able. Uh, We're with the temptation given a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. So then if we're not given that from God, James wants to point out some things that we are given from God and what it means in our life and how it contributes uh, to our Christian walk. Now let's begin reading in verse 17. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. And uh, then I've got basically three thoughts that I want to give you tonight. Verse 17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass." For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So the overall theme is this, the Christian and his Bible. These ten verses that we've read tonight are uh, basically focused on the function and role of the Word of God in the life of the believer. Now remember, there's a lot that could we, we could say about the Word of God in the life of the believer that is not within the purview of what James is talking about. He's talking about the effect and the impact of the Word of God in a very, very basic fundamental way in our lives. And we might define what he says in these terms. The Word of God is a book that is not only to be read, but also to be obeyed. I'm going to say some things before we're done tonight about what exactly James meant when he talked about the law of liberty, when he talked about uh, the word, when he talked about, he he calls it the word of truth, he uh, he calls it the law of liberty. We're going to talk about what he meant by all those things. But before he even broaches that subject, He lays in juxtaposition, he talks about what God does not give, but then he talks about what God does give. And he gives three analogies to the Word of God. I'll go ahead and give them to you before we even get into the teaching. The first that we'll take up is that God's Word is likened to a gift. The second is that God's Word is likened to a graft. And the third is that God's Word is likened to a glass. Notice again carefully verse number 17. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I've told you that a lot of people have a perspective about the book of James, that it's sort of a potpourri of religious truths, and that there's no real central theme running through it. I don't believe that's accurate. Uh, I believe that James had a central theme when he wrote it, but more importantly than that, I believe that the Holy Ghost had a central theme whenever he inspired it. And I do believe that every word of my Bible is inspired by the word of, or by the Spirit of God. And so, uh, the reason I used the word juxtaposition a moment ago, he's talked about that God does not give us temptation in the sense of the solicitation to do evil. God does not place anything in our lives that is unrighteous, that is iniquitous, that is sinful in nature. I had somebody ask me just the other day about a passage in the book of Isaiah where the Lord says that He creates evil. And uh, that word evil has a dual understanding of the Word of God the same way, especially in the Old Testament, same way that the word temptation does. Evil sometimes uh, means wickedness, unrighteousness, things that are contrary to the holiness of God. That's how we're familiar with the idea of evil. When a person says Adolf Hitler was an evil person, that's what they mean. They mean he was wicked. He was sinful. He did things that were an offense to the righteousness of God. There are times, however, in the Word of God that the word evil simply means something unpleasant. Now, the reason I tell you this is because I want to say something very, very important. God does sometimes bring things that are unpleasant into our lives. 
Anybody that reads the Bible with an open mind can see that. Uh, there are times that God brings things in our life that are not pleasant to us, and we could in that sense call them evil. And that's what Isaiah meant uh, when he was speaking about the Lord creating evil. God does allow things and even bring things into our life that are unpleasant in their nature. But God never brings into our life anything that is sinful in nature, anything that is iniquitous, anything that is contrary to His holy nature. James has said, those evil, sinful, wicked things do not come from God. What does come from God? Notice that as he's talking about the Word of God, and he's going to uh, name it specifically in verse 18, but he mentions a gift that brings divine light. And the first thing that he does, he talks about the kind of gifts that God gives us. Uh, Now, again, he's got within his mind spiritual gifts, although I think this applies to many things in our life. Listen, every good thing that I've got, it certainly came from the Lord. Uh, Everything that I've got worth having, it came from the Lord. And he mentions that by use of the word every. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. There's nothing that you have that's worth having but what God has permitted you to have it. God has allowed you to have it. Uh, It doesn't take long walking through this world before we recognize that there's people that are far better than us, far more talented than us, far richer than us, far more capable, far smarter than us, that are in far worse shape than you and I are. Why is that? Is it because somehow God likes us more? Is it because somehow we have uh, earned these things? Is it somehow because it's more just for us to have them? No, of course not. It's by the grace of God that we enjoy these things. And uh, it is that very grace to which we can both trust and attribute the good things in our life. Every good gift, every perfect gift, anything in your life worth praising uh, anybody over is worth praising God over. You wouldn't have it if it wasn't for the Lord. He talks about their monopoly, uh, uh, that every one of them comes from the Lord. But then he talks about their majesty. And there's two kinds of gifts that he describes. He says good gifts and perfect gifts. Now, that don't mean like when it was Christmas time and, you know, your aunt got your tube socks. And that was a good gift, you know. But then, then your, your grandma, you know, got you a new bicycle. And that was a perfect gift. It's not what it's saying. But instead, it's talking about the gifts that God gives, number one, in their purity. I think that probably James had in mind a uh, parable that the Lord Jesus told when he talked about the fact that, uh, well, it isn't really even a parable. It's merely just sort of uh, very expressive, vivid language to describe how that God treats us as his children. Uh, he, he basically says that, listen, if we ask for bread from the Lord, he's not going to give us a stone. If we, if we ask for, for a fish, he's not going to give us a, a serpent. If we ask for an egg, he's not going to give us a scorpion. Bet you've always wondered why he said that, didn't you? There, there were scorpions, by the way, at that time that, that would ball themselves up and they looked a lot like an egg. What he's saying is, in other words, when God gives us something, it ain't got no surprises in it. It may not go the way we're anticipating, but he don't give us anything to, to hoodwink us or to trick us or to deceive us. And, you know, I think probably even when the Lord Jesus made that statement, there's probably, James, I think, had that statement in mind when he said this about good gifts and perfect gifts. But I think the Lord Jesus had an instance in his earthly ministry in mind when he made the statement concerning uh, the bread and, and the fish and the egg. And that was whenever he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. For 40 days he'd been tempted, and he was hungry. He was hungry because he was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And uh, when you're human, you get hungry. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, the devil came up to him, and the devil said, why don't you turn that stone into some bread? The difference being this, there was going to be a high cost for doing it. The offer from Satan was take a stone and turn it into bread, The Lord Jesus later on says, no, listen, when I ask bread of my father, he doesn't give me a stone. Satan was trying to deceive him, cause him to uh, intrude upon, uh, how how do I want to say this right, cause him to do harm and and, uh, perform a crime against his submission to his father. Trying to get him to depend on his own self instead of depending on his heavenly father. The Lord Jesus later on, he says, listen, when I ask my father for bread, he gives me bread. He don't give me a stone and I don't have to turn a stone into bread. The things that God gives us, they are truly good in nature. That doesn't mean they're always pleasant, but in their very nature, they are always what we need, always what is necessary in our lives. I had a few gifts growing up. I could tell you some stories, but mom and dad are here. I don't want to embarrass them. I've got some gifts. Well, I'll tell one. Um, This was a few years ago at Christmas time. We was all sitting around, 
And uh, mom and dad had bought Christmas gifts for kind of each uh, of the families, you know. And I sat there and, and I watched I watched my sister and my brother-in-law open this big old box. And there was a flat screen TV. Son, I'm talking about like 48 inch or something or 50. I mean, big flat screen TV. Beautiful. And then I, I saw my brother open his box. Same size box. I knew what it was. That flat screen TV. I'm talking about nice. And I was getting excited. I mean, I was. I was looking at my box. My box the same size as theirs. And I was excited. I knew what was in there. And I opened my box. And it was a big trash can. One of those big outdoor trash bins that lays flat that you take. It's rubber. It's plastic that you clip together. So they got TVs. I got a trash can. Which was convenient because they had those big old boxes to throw away, and uh, I had somewhere to put them, you know. No, listen, every gift that God gives us is pure. It's exactly what we need. We don't, uh, it may not be what we're looking for, but it's always what we need. Uh, we see that it's Godlike in its purity, but Godlike also in its perfection, a perfect gift. It doesn't mean that God knows exactly what we want and always gives us what we want, but the term perfection denotes the idea of maturity, of development, of something being consummated and finished. In other words, the ways in which God blesses us and the things that God gives us, He gives us to bring us along and develop us in our spiritual maturity. And also, we might make this application that what God gives us, He gives it to us right when we need it. Not a moment too soon. He gives it to us uh, only when it is the perfect and opportune and beneficial time to receive it. Now, James is about to draw this analogy to the Word of God. And I don't want to lose sight of that because this is all true about the Word of God. The Word of God is pure in its nature. No mixture of error. No mixture of mistruth or of lie. We can count on the Word of God. It is a good gift, but also it is a perfect gift. It has the ability to perfect us, to mature us, to spiritually develop us. So he talks about the nature of the gifts. And number two, he talks about the nature of the giver. He says they come down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I love what James, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, does here. He says, first off, that God is unchallengeable. He might say, where do you get that, preacher? Well, he calls him the Father of lights. Now, that may not mean much to you and I, but in James's day that meant something, because it was very, very common in pagan worship to worship the lights of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, the Egyptians uh, considered their pharaoh to be the manifestation of the sun god. They considered him to be the incarnation of Ra. And so here James is, and he's living in a society that has still embraced pagan worship. We still live in an idolatrous society, but we don't have the same kind of pagan worship that they had at that time. But literally, James was surrounded by people in his day-to-day life that many of them worshipped the sun. And James says the God that we serve is the Father of lights. He's even above who they consider to be the most supreme God that they worship. He's unchallengeable. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. And there's none like Him. And then he mentions the fact that He's unchangeable. And this is what I think is so amazing. He says, with whom is no variableness. A variableness merely means there's no variation. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. One of the last things God said in the Old Testament is that He changes not. He is the same. He is immutable in His nature. He is unchangeable in His nature. He is unconquerable in His nature. There's nothing that man can do to change an iota of who God is and what God does in the sense of His nature and in the sense of His character. He has no variableness. But then notice this phrase, neither shadow of turn. Now remember, He said He's like the Father, he, that He is the Father of lights. Liken this to the Son. The sun has variableness. In fact, the sun is in a constant state of change. The sun is burning out. It's one of the reasons I know and believe in uh, in the Bible's record of a six-day creation. I don't believe we could have been around for billions of years, very simply because the sun would have burned out if we had been around for billions of years. You say, well, preacher, maybe it was a lot hotter once. Well, if it did, it would have burnt up everything on this earth. There would have been no life sustained. No, listen, there's a shelf life on the sun. It's in a constant state of change. God never changes. But then I think that James probably, too, had in mind the idea of a sundial when he said neither shadow of turning. 
Uh, that was how they kept time uh, in, in his day, was they would watch the sundial. And as the sun moved, the shadow would overtake the dial. And uh, eventually the sun would set, and there'd be no more light, there'd be no more glorious emanating of, of heat and of light and of, of, uh, uh, of manifestation. That sun would, would follow its course and would set. And he says, God's not that way. God doesn't change. God, uh, the, the sun never sets. In, in, in the sense of a pun, the S-O-N, the sun never sets. He never changes. He's never off the job. God never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always the same. And then he says in verse number 18, so first he talks about a gift that brings divine light. He talks about the Father and His goodness to us. Second, he talks about a gift that brings divine light. He says, of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, he talks about three things. He talks about the will of God, the Word of God, and the wisdom of God. And these three things relate, first, when he talks about the will of God, it relates to the past. Uh, whenever he says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, it's not saying that God chose some to heaven and chose some to hell. It's that God made the decision to perform a redemptive work in mankind. Uh, the Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In a time, in, in eternity past, dateless, timeless, no sun, no stars, no time even moving or marching, the Godhead discussed amongst itself that they would perform an act of creation, that it was their will, their desire, that they not abide alone in their glory, but that they be able to bring a creation into that glory. And so an act of creation was determined. But then they understood, because God knows all things, that not only an act of creation, but an act of redemption would be necessary. That if He created man, man was going to fall. And sure enough, man fell. And, uh, you know, the Bible talks about a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, God already had Calvary planned out. Calvary was not an audible. Calvary was not a mistake. Calvary was not uh, a surprise to God. It was always the will of God that uh, that Christ go to the cross of Calvary, that mankind not be redeemed unto him in the particular and special way that he is. I, I want to stop and do a lot of preaching there, but time won't allow me to do so. And then, consequently, that there would be an act of regeneration that would have to take place. So in other words, he'd create mankind, mankind would fall, Christ would have to die for mankind, but then for the culmination of that act of redemption to take place, a human being would have to be regenerated. It's the will of God that men get saved. In fact, it's the will of God that all men get saved. Now, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe all men are saved. I don't believe all men have ever been saved. I don't believe all men are ever going to get saved. But I believe if God had His way without having to compromise His holiness and without having to trample upon the free will volition of man, God would love to see every single one of His creations redeemed unto Himself. That's what God desires. So we see the past spoken about and the will of God. Secondly, He speaks about the Word of God. He calls it the Word of Truth. The word of truth. It's going to have a great bearing, by the way, when he talks about the law later on, uh, because he viewed the law as being a true thing. And this is very important. He didn't see the law as being a, a corrupted or burdensome uh, document. Now, he understood that men had corrupted it. In fact, when he closes out this chapter, I think he's got in mind the Judaizers that had sought to uh, corrupt what God had revealed in the Old Testament. But to James, the word of God was the word of truth. So if the will of God represents the past, the Word of God is our, our present point of contact and reference and influence in our relationship with God. It is the Word of God that saves a man. It is the Word of God that sanctifies a man. The Word of truth is the central entity, is the central influence in the life of the believer. If your life is not centered on the Word of God, then it's not the way God intends it to be. It is the word of truth. And then he talks about the wisdom of God. Uh, he says this, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Remember, you always got to ask yourself when you read anything in the Bible, what did it mean to the person that wrote it? The phrase first fruits would have been uh, inundated with, with meaning uh, to James because, again, James was an admirer of the law and James was a Jew and James was a keeper of the law in many ways. 
And the term first fruits would have been distinctly connected with the feast of first fruits that transpired every year when the harvest came in in the land of Israel. On the day after the Sabbath, when they were keeping this feast of first fruits, they would uh, be commanded of God to present a sheaf offering before the Lord. What that means is this: that the fields would be full to the brim uh, with uh, with with crops and with fruit and with grain and with wheat, and they were commanded before they ever picked anything for themselves to go out and to uh, thresh some wheat and to bring it in and to wave that sheep before the Lord as a picture of the fact that they were yielding the first of their fruits unto God. This is how James envisions uh, born-again believers in his day. That they are the first fruits of God's creatures, of God's new creation, of the, the... we don't like the word new world order because we identify it with the Antichrist, and, and rightly so. But there's an even greater wor- world order that's coming after that, and that's the millennial kingdom. And so I think James envisioned that believers in his day, and Paul fleshes this truth out much more when he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 about the uh, the rapture and about the resurrection of the saints and, and Christ being the first fruits and then those that are Christ that is coming and, uh, you know, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, Paul spent a lot of time fleshing this out, but James, he merely picked up on the fundamental truth that believers were the first step in God renovating and renewing His creation. That speaks to the future, to the perspective, to the wisdom of God. I've got some verse I wanted to read that I'm not going to have time to do so, but I encourage you to read Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, and chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, and it'll give you an idea as Paul talks about some of that. Uh, so he talks about the gift that brings divine life, he talks about a gift that brings, or divine light, and then he talks about a gift that brings divine life. Look with me in verse number 19. So first, we see that God's word is likened to a gift. Second, God's word is likened to a graft. He says this, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The first thing he says is that the word of God has the capacity to affect change in our talk. He says that the first principle that he wants to give to us, or I hate to use that term first principle because it shows up later in your, in your notes, but the first truth relative to this that he wants to give us is that as believers we are called upon to be swift to respond to people speaking to us. How many of you heard growing up, there's a reason God gave you one mouth, two ears? <laughs> It's very simple, isn't it? And James tends to be simple in the truths that he's conveying. But he says, wherefore, my beloved brethren? In other words, as a result of the fact that God has created us a new creature in Christ Jesus, that God has produced us as being the first fruits of his redemptive plan for all of creation, in light of that, it should produce in us a divine caution to listen to the truth of the word of God. One of the chief characteristics of a spirit, uh, a, a spirit indwelt and spirit led believer is that they will be swift to listen to the truth of the Word of God when it's presented to them. I'll tell you this: we do far better in life if we could learn how to listen, and that applies not just to spiritual truths, but to all truths. It applies to political truths, to marital truths. <laughs> if we could just learn to listen, you know, most people, and let this hit you if it hits you. Most people never really listen to other people. When folks are talking to them, they're just sitting there trying to figure out what they're going to say next. Instead of really listening to what's being said to them. The righteous man, and the first step, I think, in this expression of true religion that, that James is unfolding before us is that we're swift to listen. And what will that produce in us? Well, we'll be slow to resort to speaking. Uh, one of the things that I've told my Children, especially my four-year-old, I've told my wife, and I've told myself on many, many occasions, is that a person can't argue and listen at the same time. You can't do it. It's impossible. If you're arguing, you're trying to voice your opinion. If you're listening, you're trying to understand their opinion. You can't argue and listen at the same time. And I think the symbiotic nature of that, that dynamic is, is what James is talking about here. If we are swift to hear, that will make us be slow to speak. 
Often, if we'll just simply slow down and hear what someone's saying to us, it'll give enough time for the Spirit of God to wrangle our words into submission till they can be used for His glory. But in the spiritual realm, as he's talking about the Word of God, and he's about to get very deep into it, uh, our, our first intent, we ought to always uh, do more listening to God than we do talking to God. Listen, I'm an advocate of prayer, and I don't want you to misunderstand me. And there is a there is a listening that the soul does even in prayer. But the Word of God must reign preeminent in our lives. And we we'll always give God more time to talk to us than we do us more time to talk to God. He says we need to be slow to resort to speaking. Look at verse number 19. He gives a, a first principle, slow to speak. And what does he say? That this will produce something as well. If we're swift to hear then that'll make us slow to speak. If we're slow to speak, then that'll produce something else, and that's being slow to wrath. Slow, Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then he gives us the reason for that. He says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now, there is such thing as righteous anger. There is such thing as righteous indignation. But what he's talking about here, very simply, is a person losing their temper. Nobody ever did anything for God by losing their temper. Now you might say, well, preacher, what about Christ in the, in the temple? And he drove out. He was never out of control for one moment. He didn't lose nothing. In fact, he gave a divine reason for his indignation. He said, listen, uh, the, uh, the word of God says that this will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He knew exactly what he was doing. Nobody ever accomplished anything for God by losing their temper. And I think the greatest expression of this probably, and would have been a man that would have commanded a lot of respect in James's mind, and that was Moses. You think about Moses, the meekest man to ever live. That's what the Bible says. And for 40 years, he listened. He listened to God. He listened to the people complain. He listened to the elders that he had appointed to help him in ministering to the people. He listened, 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 listened. And in the 40th year, in the first month of their wanderings, they come back to a place by the name of Kadesh. They'd been there 40 years earlier. They had been thirsty. They had no way to get water. And God had commanded Moses to smite a rock. And when that rock was smitten, water came pouring forth. Forty years later, here they are, back at the same rock. And the same, well, not the same people, the kids of those people, are now acting in the same way that their parents did. And they're griping and moaning saying, you brought us out into this wilderness to die. Now, you know, let me just let me just defend Moses for a second, all right? He just, he had had it up to here. He's over it. And God said to Moses, Moses, don't smite the rock, speak to it. Now, God had a very important reason for this. It was to be a picture of Calvary. The rock, and we know, Paul says later on, that rock was Christ. The rock that followed them in the wilderness, and it did follow them, was a picture of Christ. And that rock was only smitten one time. When it was smitten, water came forth, the water of life, freely to any and all. But afterwards, that rock will never have to be smitten again. That rock never will be smitten again. Now all that's needed is to speak to the rock. What a beautiful picture that would have been if Moses hadn't lost his temper. He goes out, he gives the people a thorough dressing down, and he takes his staff, and two times he smites the rock. Water comes forth because God was going to meet the needs of his people. But that produced a death sentence on Moses' life. It was that action that caused him to never see the promised land. He died an untimely death. Though he was an old man, the Bible says his sight was not dim, his strength was not abated, but there he was buried on Mount Pisgah and could not go into the promised land because he lost his temper. If he had been meek, it would have produced something righteous. But because he was angry and he lost his temper and he operated in wrath, it instead did not work the righteousness of God. It instead brought a death sentence upon him. So the word of God is to affect a change in our talk. Number two, it's to affect a change in our walk. Look at verse number 21. He says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. First he speaks of what we are to reject. And he, he names two things, filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, the term filthiness has the idea of something unclean, something with dirt on it. If you've got toddlers, you know what filthiness is. And the term superfluity means an excess of something, 
An overabundance of something. The term naughtiness, we know what the word naughty means, but it's that it's really been in many ways neutered from its original impact and, 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 uh, and forcefulness. Uh, whenever James pinned down this word, and then whenever the word naughtiness was delivered to us in the King James Bible, it held with it the idea of all that is wicked, all that is vicious, all that is the basis of, of mankind's behavior and instincts. In other words, all that is wicked, all that is bad, all that is filthy. James says, if we're going to work the righteousness of God, we have to lay apart all those things. Paul used the phrase to put off. said we're to put off the old man, we're to put on Christ Jesus. James has the same kind of idea. We're to lay it apart. We're to set it to the side. Now he understands it's not going to be an easy task. And so he talks about what we are to receive. And he says, we are to with meekness receive the engrafted word. I, you know, I've always defined meekness as strength under spiritual control. And I believe that is a good definition. Uh, but I thought this was very interesting. Uh, one commentator said this and defined meekness this way. Meekness accepts all of God's dealings with us as both good and gracious. I think it is this concept that James probably had in mind. Being willing to humble ourselves... And recognize that the Word of God is what we need, that it is right, that we are wrong. You see, if we're going to lay something apart, lay it to the side, we must first recognize that it's not healthy for us, that it's not good for us. Hey, you know why you don't want to put down that Big Mac? Because you're thinking more about the taste than the calories. Am I right? There's a reason most good restaurants don't have mirrors in them. They don't want you thinking about that, man. They know. I, listen, I, I've never been to, to a Hardee's that had a bathroom scale in it. Never once. <laughs> they don't want you thinking about that. The more you think about it, the less you're going to want to go out there and order that bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. I'm making myself hungry now. <laughs> Meekness recognizes that though there may be something we want, if God's Word says it's wrong, then it's not something we need. It submits the human desire to the divine authority of the Word of God. I think that in as much as we reconcile those two definitions for meekness that we gave, we might lay heavy on the idea of strength or of, of volition under spiritual control and direction. With meekness, recognizing that God knows what's best for us. Once we have that spirit, and by the way, Christ exhibited that spirit throughout His entire earthly ministry. He always submitted to the will of His Father. Now, if Christ never said, but I know best, and he's God, then what right we, do we have to look at God and say, but God, I know best? Meekness would own the authority of the Word of God and pay allegiance through obedience to God's divine command. We're to receive the engrafted Word. That word engrafted simply means something that's sown, rooted, or implanted. In James' mind, he has the idea of a plant, of something that is a living entity that has that is rooted in another uh, mineral, in another matter, in another material. And so he views the Word of God as something that's been implanted within us, that has a life of its own, that has a deep connection to our life. In fact, when you talk about engrafting something in, any of you that have uh, got a green thumb, you may have done something like this where you uh, will take shoots off of one plant and will uh, make a cut, make an opening in another plant and place those shoots in it and bind it up so that those two things will grow into one plant. You've probably seen trees. If you've ever been outdoors quite a bit and done any kind of farm work or anything like that, you've probably seen times when a tree will grow up around a piece of barbed wire. I've got places on my property that are like that old barbed wire fences and, and that, uh, that barbed wire has been grafted into that tree so that they become one and the same. And there's a deep personal connection. It is through meekness that the Word of God takes root in our hearts and lives. We must recognize that the Word of God is not a book like any other book in the existence of the world, in all of human history. That it is a living book. It is living because the author is living and he is present when it's read and he inspires and empowers the use of the content and context of the Word of God in our lives. And as such, we need to approach the Word of God as something that has a life-giving capacity and power. 
It's not just a book to be observed, and that's what he's getting to. That's where he winds up, is that it's not just a book to be observed, it's a book to be obeyed. With meekness we are to receive it. And what are we to resolve? This is where he gets into this principle, verse 22. It says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, before I move on, I feel like I need to make this statement right here. I was going to make it a little later, but I feel like I need to make it right here. When James talked about the word of truth, the law of liberty, the word of God, there was no New Testament written. He was talking about the Old Testament law. Now, that's important. It's important because we need to understand that he had a pure perspective of what the law was. One of the great disservices that has been done to Christianity today, not by dispensationalism, mind you, but by anti-dispensationalism, is to try to lump the Old Testament into being a bad book and the New Testament into being a good book. That's not true. The Old Testament is just as inspired as the New Testament. Dispensationalism enables us to logically compartmentalize what applies to us and what applies to various people groups throughout human history to understand what signification there may be in those differences, but also to appreciate and absorb the greater spiritual truths that emanate from those things. In other words, I can read the Old Testament and I can recognize in certain places that that's not written to me, but it is written for me. And James, when he talked about the Old Testament law, he didn't talk about it like a, a, a rule book that was, you know, onerous and that was burdensome. He talked about it as the expressive living word of God. As such, that ought to do a couple things. One, it ought to give us a greater appreciation and respect for the Old Testament. It ought to make us realize that you can't cut things out of your Bible just because it's Old Testament. A lot of people try to do that. A lot of people, you talk to them about something, they'll say, oh, but that's Old Testament. Like that's an argument. Like they've made a point by saying that. Well, that don't mean anything. Uh, That doesn't mean it's not true, at least, anyways. But also, too, it gives us an understanding of how these rudimentary fundamental principles that James sets forth that are embodied through Old Testament law, how that it was not them that were corrupt, but it was rather the rabbinical writings and the rabbinical uh, perspective and the rabbinical burdens that were placed upon these things that corrupted the truth of them. Now, that is not to suggest that there aren't certain things in the Old Testament that were done away with in Christ. And Paul would go on later on to talk about the handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us, that was taken out of the way, that was nailed to the cross, and certainly that is true. But we should never look backwards through the Old Testament with disdain. We should never look at it and say, well, that's just the Old Testament. James said that's the law of liberty. We look at it as a law of bondage, but he called it a law of liberty. So he says we are to resolve in our hearts and minds that we're going to be doers of the word, not hearers only. To do so, to be a hearer only and not a doer, he says, is to deceive yourself. And then he gives one final truth, and it ties all of this together. Look at verse number 23. It says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So the word of God is likened to a gift. In the first few verses we read, then it's likened to a graph, something living, dwelling inside of us. And then finally, he likens the word of God to a glass. Now, uh, mirrors are are a relatively recent invention in the sense of a glass mirror. Uh, most of the time throughout human history, they would use metal polished very highly. Uh, but, but the idea of a mirror like we are familiar with, like if you were to go in the bathroom and look and see that mirror that's perfectly reflected, is an invention that is fairly, it past few hundred years of human history. So when he uses the term glass, he's talking about a mirror. Uh, we might use the term looking glass. You've heard that before. Uh, that's what he's talking about. He's saying the word of God is like a mirror. And he gives this analogy. He says, a person that is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, you want to know if your Bible's inspired? Notice it doesn't say like a woman beholding her natural face in a glass says it's like a man. You know why? Because when women look in a mirror, if they see something they don't like, they stay there till it's fixed. But men don't do that. <laughs> we'll look in a mirror and we'll say, ah, that's pretty good. It, at least it ain't going to get no better. I know that. And we'll turn around and walk off. 
We see this challenging experience, and he talks about a foolish condition. person that hears the word but does not do the word. And then he gives this forceful comparison. It's like a man that walks up, looks in a mirror, sees what's wrong with him, turns around, and walks off without ever changing anything. That's what it's like for a person to hear the word of God, to observe the word of God, to absorb the word of God, to recognize what it's saying, but then just to turn around and walk off. Sadly, that's the condition of so many Christians today. So many Christians. Listen, I, and I'm, I'm, I want to be cautious in what I say. I believe a person can do business with God without ever going to an altar. I do. I do. But if we can sit in pews for weeks and months and years and remain unchanged, whether that manifests with a trip to the altar or not, that's neither here nor there. But if we can do that, if we can just sit and listen as an academic exercise and it never changes, James says that's a foolish man. That's a man that's deceived his own self. That's a man that thinks he's something he's not. Think about what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 18. When he's talking about the Word of God, he says, "...but we all with open face beholding as in a glass." Same analogy. The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. Much like Moses who went up on the mountain and viewed the glory of God. And when he came down, he had to veil his face because the glory of God was shining upon it, reflecting off of it. In the same way, you and I, when we observe the Word of God and hear the Word of God, it ought to produce a change in us. It ought to stir us. It ought to move us. It's a challenging experience. It shows us what's wrong in our lives. It shows us what must be made right in our lives. And for too long, we've sat and listened and said, Boy, that's good for somebody, without putting ourselves in the examination chair. Saying, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to say to me? How does this apply to my life? What is this saying to me right now in this moment? What can I change? It says, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But on the other side, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So he says, on the one hand, there's people that look at themselves in the mirror of the Word of God and turn around and walk away. But then there's others that, and, and I like the way he says this, when he says, looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that word look that carries the idea of a person stooping. You know what's a good example of this? You remember whenever Peter and John went to the empty tomb? And Mary Magdalene had gone there early in the morning. She sees the stone rolled away. She doesn't know what's happened, so she runs back. She tells the disciples, and Peter and John, they pick up, and they take off running. And John outruns him, gets there first. But John stops short. Peter, as is always Peter, fools rush in, right? Just rushes right in. And he looks around, and he says, Jesus ain't here. And he turns around, and he runs off. John had stopped short. I don't know if it was fear or faith that stopped him short, but something did. And after Peter left, he went and he stooped down, the Bible says, and looked in. John says about himself, that disciple believed. He didn't just rush through it like Peter did. He stopped, he stooped, he took careful glance, he looked, he considered. You know, he was the only one that later on said that napkin was folded by itself. He said, hey, <laughs> somebody took these glary clothes off themselves. <laughs> I'm about to preach. Be patient with me. He said, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't the hurried work of body snatchers. Somebody done put these grave clothes off of themselves and took the careful care to fold that napkin and set it by itself. You know why? Because if it was you and you was wrapped in grave clothes, you'd throw everything off till you got your hands free. The last thing you'd take off would be that napkin. And it you would fold and lay to the side by itself. I've heard the thing about a napkin being folded and the servant coming back after the meal. I don't know if that's true or not. I ain't never been able to find any source material on it. But I do believe Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. 
John saw something different because he stooped and looked in than Peter saw. In the same way, those that give a, a rushing casual glance at the law, and that's what he's talking about is the law, the one no New Testament, the law when he pinned this down. He says those that rush by it, they don't see much. But those that stop and give careful study and consideration and look at it and view it through the eye of faith, they see it as the perfect law of liberty. Not as something that binds men, but as something that frees men. It's a question of discerning. Discernment. Stop. Stoop. Look in. Careful consideration. Don't rush through your Bible. Relish your Bible. Uh, one commentator said it this way, I'd a lot rather lay my soul a soak in a few verses of the Word of God than wash my hands in several chapters every day. Spend time to meditate on God's Word. And above all, he says it's a question of discernment, then he says it's a question of doing. He says, continueth therein. Continue. Doesn't just do it for one moment, but continues therein. You know, very few of us obey the Word of God long enough for it to work. Instead, we've been living in rebellion. God just stomps all over us in a sermon, and the Holy Ghost just absolutely drives us out of that pew, and we go to an altar, and we weep, and we cry, and we ask forgiveness, and we repent, and we go back home, and buddy, we live it for about 12 hours. Then Monday comes, and we go back to doing the same old thing we always did. Ain't no wonder we don't see no lasting effect and change in our lives. We're not doers of the Word if we don't continue in it. Hey, listen, the Bible is a miraculous book, but it won't work if you don't implement it. It doesn't work by osmosis. We have to obey it. Then finally, look at these last two verses. I'll mention these and we'll close. There is a call to behold in those first two verses that we read, verses 23 and 24. And then that's going to produce, verse 26 and 27, a call to behave. He says in verse number 26, he describes a pretended religion. He says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, a lot of people balk at James's use of this word religion. But Judaism was a religion. It was a religion. Uh, Christ didn't come to found a religion. He came to give men opportunity to have a relationship with the God of heaven. But inasmuch as we talk about religion as being sort of an external construct of morality and uh, of some semblance of devotion and, and fealty to God, Judaism was a religion. And James saw Calvary as being the culmination, the realization of what that religion pointed to. And so he says, listen, if any, if any among you seems to be religious, I like that word seem. You know what it means? Has the opinion. If anybody says they're religious, talks about being religious, if other folks see, think that they're religious, he says, here's how you can tell. Here's the test. What do they do with their tongue? Can they bridle their own tongue? Can they change what they say? Can they treat men in compassion and in kindness? Listen, there's a lot of preachers and Christians walking around today that they think ugliness is sanctification. They think if you can just be mean, that that somehow is a measure of devotion. Uh, listen, I, and I've said this about the King James issue. I am King James only, but I don't ever want to be King James ugly. And that's true for everything. I, listen, we can be right without being rude. Uh, we, we don't have to have a bad spirit about us. And being right won't produce a bad spirit in us unless carnality gets in the mix. Man may seem to be religious, but can he bridle his tongue? That's the question. If he can't control that, then he ain't under control. That's one of the first things the Spirit of God will get a hold of when he saves and changes a man, is that tongue. And he may seem to be religious, but the truth of the matter is, if he can't bridle his own tongue, he's deceived his own heart. This man's religion is vain, meaningless, it's empty. It don't matter, listen, it doesn't matter what you preach if what you say does not back up what you preach, and if what you live does not back up what you preach, then none of the rest matters. You can have all the religion in the world. We're seeing that right now in the Catholic Church, ain't we? Right? Vicar of Christ, incarnate, sits ex cathedra and covers up child abuse cases. I don't I listen. I, I and I don't. I don't have. I, I knew the Pope wanting the Vicar of Christ before that. But I'm talking about to a secular world. They see that. There's a reason the Catholic Church is declining. By the way, there's a reason that Islam is booming. 
Because people see it as being something genuine. And in some sense, the devotion associated with it is genuine. I'm about to get in the weeds here. I got a lot I want to say about that. (laughs) But suffice it to say, people are hungry for something that changes and dictates the way people live. And that's why people are flocking to Islam. Most of the people that are flocking to Islam have come from the world of chaos. And they see in it order. And it's meaningful to them. And it's attractive to them. You see the opposite transpiring in the Roman Catholic Church. They preach order, but it's chaos. And for the Spirit-filled, indwelt believer, if the Spirit of God is not in, in control of us, then whatever we may purport to be religious about don't mean anything. All the ceremony, all the pomp, all the circumstance don't mean anything if God can't get a hold of our tongue. Our religion is in vain. Many describes a practical religion. So the pretended religion is the person says they're religious, but uh, that's the only religious thing they say is that they're religious. Their tongue is not bridled. And then he describes practical religion, and he calls it pure religion. It says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now remember, he saw a lot of defiled religion. He recognized what had, what had gone on in Judaism. He was in the chains of defiled religion for many, many years in unbelief before God saved him. So he knows what he's talking about. But he says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't indict the law and the God of the law and the law of the Lord just because of what the rabbis have done to it. He says, this is pure religion. Pure religion is this. First, unstinted giving. He said to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That term visit, it carries with the idea of to visit with the idea of helping. Same way that later on, uh, James would charge uh, Paul and Silas uh, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, whenever they would commission them, send them out after the Jerusalem conference, said that they needed to not forget the poor. And they weren't talking about the poor in general. They were talking about the poor in the church, the fatherless, the widows, those that were in the body of Christ that couldn't tend to their own needs. And Paul says, which we were forward to do. We had already made up our minds to do that. But James, that was priority to him. If your religion is real, it'll reach your wallet. It'll reach your wallet. And then he talks about unstained living. He says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. If your quote-unquote religion can't make you different than the world that you live in, then what good is it in the first place? You see, God's Word is a gift to us. God's Word is a graft. It dwells within us and it produces life from within that bears witness and testimony without. And God's Word is like a glass. It shows us where we're wrong. It shows us how to get right. And if what, if our religion, if our spirituality, if our Christianity is real, then it'll produce a change in us. It'll, as we've said, put things in shoe leather. 